He said, here, you're on your own. You have to be independent now. And he went to heaven. But it's important because he sent back the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. They went into the streets with courage. They began preaching. People came to be followers of Jesus Christ. They were converted on that day, thousands of them. They were pilgrims to Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem, went back to their homes in the known world, and started churches. A great beginning. One of the most important beginnings in human history, not just in scripture, but in human history, began on the day of Pentecost. That was last Sunday. Today, we look at Genesis chapter 1. We're still out in the sermon, right? <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> it was the beginning of all beginnings. And now I have a diagram that I want to show you. Uh, this is kind of the, the movement that I developed this years ago. It's not terribly profound or anything. But <clears throat> you see, it begins on, on my left. Uh, your left, too. <laughs> well, maybe you're rather left. Anyway, it begins with creation, obviously. And then there's the disobedience of, of humans, and there's what we call the fall, and then sin spirals out of control, and it continues on down until where the line is at the Tower of Babel, when the people at the Tower of Babel decided that they could become gods. They built this great tower to reach out to God and <clears throat> be like God. And so God said, enough. He separated them by giving them different languages, different language uh, groups, and they were separated. And community is lost. What started in, in God's economy was that the people would be together in community, and now community is lost, so hope is lost. And at that point, then, is chapter, that's the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12 begins hope again. Because that's when God calls Abraham and says, I will make of you a great nation, and that nation will bless the nations and will be my witness to the world. And so hope comes, and we know the end of that hope is that out of the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ is born. And we begin the cycle of the lectionary again. So, Rob is calling this um, helpful, helpful Diagram. You know, it's a creative name for a <laughs> sermon series. Actually, it's family tree. So we're going to be looking at Abraham as a beginning and how he leads to the ultimate beginning of the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay, so <clears throat> that is the, uh, all of the preliminaries. And now we move to the sermon. So today we look at Genesis chapter 1, and I was going to read the entire thing, and I read it, and I thought, well, it'll take a couple minutes to read, and I found it took about five minutes, so I said, well, we'll, we'll cut it down. But uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then at 26, which is the climax of this passage, begins at verse 26 through 28, and then we're going to finish it off with... Chapter 2 through 4a. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a form. Let me, let me just say, the, the first chapter of Genesis is one of the richest, most profound passages in all of Scripture. There is so much here. I, 
during this week, the hardest thing was what not to say. Because there's so much here. Let me just give you an example of that. What you're going to see in Genesis chapter 1 is a pattern that repeats itself over and over again. And it begins with, and God said, bang, something happens. Right? Let there be light, there was light. And then God sees that it was good, and he says, and God said, the editor of this, the writer, says, and God said, it was good, after all of the creation. And then it says, and this was the first day, or this was the second day, this was the third day. That's a pattern that's repeated. So you know that this was well written, that it was edited, and it was <clears throat> put in the form, and I'll talk about this later than uh, the time of Moses. But anyway, look for that pattern. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And now we jump all the way down to, this is the pinnacle, this is the climax of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they are created. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now as I look through here, I was, there was so much to say. I mean, it is just, it, it is so packed that I was having a hard time deciding. And then I got to come across the idea of identity. And so I want to leave aside all the other themes that are possible and focus on that one word, identity. We all need to know where we came from. The rise in, um, I was going to say astronomy. Uh, astrology? Yeah. Astronomy. Astrology. 
Anyway, when you're looking for your ancestors, uh, ancestry. Ancestry, yes, you are ancestry. No. So that, that's grown. People are really interested. Why are they interested? Because we don't know who we are if we don't know where or who we came from. And I think we find that's true in, in some people that are adopted uh, as babies. They don't know who their birth parents are. And so there's this sort of empty feeling within them, and they need and they want to look for their birth parents because it helps them understand who they are. So identity is very, very important to us, and we need to know what our identity is as the people of God. And I think this passage begins to help us with a question of identity. And it does so by answering three questions. Who is God? Who are we? And what is our purpose? It begins with asking the question, who is God? Now, let me say that Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the two creation accounts, are not about science. They're about theology. The love for the study of God. And these are theological texts, they're not scientific texts. So there's no reason to drag science in and make them in opposition to one another. It's about theology. It's telling us who God is from the very beginning and so what God did as well. So these narratives actually were put in the form that we have them now in about 587 BC. They were originally started by Moses. Moses wrote, you know, the scripture says, even Jesus says that, that Moses wrote the law. So he began to, but they weren't in their final form. And they, they were forged on the anvil of, of oppression and suffering. In 857 BC, the Babylonian war machine marched from Babylon to the little country, almost nameless country of Judah that nobody knew about, destroyed the major cities, went to Jerusalem, the capital, destroyed the capital so there was no stone laying upon any stone that was leveled, and destroyed the temple. Took the leadership captive into exile. That means the king and all of his court. It means some of the major artisans. It means government officials. Uh, I mean, some of the wealthier merchants were taken into exile. So there they are in Babylon. And as the psalmist says, they began asking the question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a new land? All of the sights, the smells of their culture were gone. Everything that gave them comfort is gone. And here they are in a foreign land. And they begin to wonder, who is God? Now, this is a very important question for them. Because throughout the ancient Near East, all of the major cultures had temples to their gods or gods plural. Uh, because in the ancient Near East, Israel as well, they all believed that uh, God lived, their God or gods lived in the temple. That's why you find temples in all of the major empires of the world. In the Egyptian Empire, in the Babylonian, in the Syrian, in the Persian, in the Greek, and the Roman. They all had temples to their gods because they believed that God lived in the temple that they built for. The temple has been destroyed in Jerusalem. 
And so they're wondering, how can it be that the Babylonians destroyed our God? Who is our God now? Now that we have stripped away all the things that define us, who are we? And they began asking the question, who is God? And they looked at the, what Moses had written, and they began to edit Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and, and put it together. And there, they begin to find their answer. One of the reasons I pointed out the order within the scripture that, that it has a pattern that it follows is because that literary technique points to a reality that God is a God of order. This isn't a random creation. This is thought through. It is systematic. The ancient uh, Near Eastern gods, the polytheistic nature gods, <clears throat> they believed that anything that was more powerful than man was a god, you know, if it was the rainstorm or the lightning, thunder, a tree, whatever. That could be a god and it was to be worshipped. The Israelites are, are there and they're in Babylon, they're in captivity, they're questioning who they are as the people of God. And they look around them and they see all of these gods and these temples and they say, no. And they write this and they edit it so it becomes a polemic, an apology against the ancient Near Eastern polytheistic gods. To say, no, that is not the God who created. That is not our God. And they went all the way back to their time in Egypt, 400 years in, in slavery. And they looked and they saw, yes, their God defeated the most powerful army of the time, Pharaoh's army. And he took them out and walked them through on dry land at the Red Sea, helped them wander in the wilderness and gave them a land. And he said, that's God. That's the God who created. Because only that God can save and deliver. And so that is the only God powerful enough to create. And they saw order in the creation. You see, the problem with the, with the polytheistic nature gods is that they were very uh, fickle. They were very uh, capricious. They were uh, arbitrary. You never knew how to please them. You didn't know what to do to please them. And your life was lived in anxiety because the God might have a jealous fit and you're the loser for it. And the Jews are looking and they're saying, so who is God? He's not like those gods. All of the ancient Near Eastern cultures had a, a creation story. There's a lot of similarity between them. There's borrowing back and forth from different cultures over the centuries. But they looked at those and they said, no, no. For example, the Babylonians, their creation story tells of Tiamat, which is a, was a goddess, a very wicked goddess who was ruling the world. And then uh, her son, Marduk, he rose up in rebellion against her. He slayed her in this vicious battle. And then he chopped her body up into small parts. And out of those body uh, parts that were chopped up, he created the earth. And they said, no. It's not a panoply, panoply of gods. It's not polytheistic. There was one God who was not fickle or capricious, 
who is orderly, and we see it in his creation. And they knew that he cared because he brought them up out of Egypt and that gave them hope that they would be released from captivity in Babylon. So who is God? That's where we begin to find our identity. Genesis 1 assures us that at the center of the universe is a God who is with us and not against us. A God who is for us. We will see that. But we have to move on to the second question. That's who is God? One thing I didn't say that I need to say is that also the picture that we get of God here in Genesis 1 is that God is outside of nature. He's not a part of nature. For the polytheistic gods were all a part. They were simply humans written large. And the Israelites, Israelites said no. God is outside of nature and is powerful enough simply to speak and the worlds come into existence. They knew that because that was the God who saved them. If he could save them, he could create the world. So our image of ourself begins in this God who is for us and not against us. But we have to go on to the second question, and that is, who are we? The picture in Genesis 1 is of God creating a garden. And then he places humanity in the midst of that garden. And that's why I say this is the climax. Verses 24, I mean 26 through, uh, <clears throat> through 28 are the climax. Of, because God says, let us make humankind in our image. Let them have dominion over the earth. And so that's asking who we are. It begins with the fact that God has created us as the highest of his creation. At the pinnacle of his creation, he's created everything, preparing the land for the people, the garden for the people. He's given them, he's made the night and the day. He's given them dry land. He's made the grass to grow, the trees to grow, the fruit. And now he comes and the garden is prepared, the wild animals and God says, let us make humankind in our image. The word that is used for create there is Allah. It's a special Hebrew word that is, is used very seldom in the Old Testament. And when it is used, it is used of God alone. It's a word that speaks of God's creation. And what it means is a creation without analogy. This is a one-off event. God created us like himself. So we can take from that that you, my friends, are special. Are very special in the eyes of God. And that has vast implications for our life and how we live it. With the beginning of life issues, with the end of life issues with how we treat people with racial relations. And the list goes on. Because every single person is created at the beginning, at the pinnacle of God's creation, saying that we are special. Our specialness is that we are created in the image of God. And that's at the very heart of our identity. 
None of the other animals can say they're created in the image of God. Now, the image of God has been interpreted in various ways. That it means that we have a moral capacity. We have a conscience by which we make, can make moral decisions. It's been interpreted as being uh, <clears throat> that we have the ability to create. That we have rationality, that we are not held to our, our lower brain, our primitive brain's reactions, that we can override them with the cerebral cortex. We can think, and we can think rationally. And it's also been uh, interpreted to mean that we were created with the capacity for and the desire for relationships. Now, I believe all of those are a part of the image of God. But I think there's another part that's even bigger and more important. We have to take a step back now and look at our third question. What is our purpose? So our text has shown us a God who is above and beyond nature, who is orderly and is for us rather than against us. And then we know that we're created special because we're created at the pinnacle, at the, at the the summit of his creation, and that he's created us in the image of God. But how does that then inform our identity? What is the purpose for which God created us? So the final, the ultimate meaning of the image of God is that we are to be the representatives of God's honor. Verse 26, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the earth, the birds and the cattle, all of the wild things, even the creepy, crawly things. God blessed them, meaning the humans. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what it's saying here is that we are to be God's managers of the earth. The picture that is represented here, or that is presented, is one of God creating he creates humanity and he puts in humanity's hand a hoe to tend the garden. Not a scythe to reap it and harvest. Not a candle to worship it. But a hoe. So the image of God, you see, it's been interpreted in many different ways. In fact, it's unfortunately, there have been some in the Christian church who have interpreted this when it says, let them have dominion over the earth to mean that we have a license to use all of the natural resources for our own benefits without thought of successive generations. That we have been given a license to rape the earth for our own benefits. That's a misinterpretation. You have to interpret it in light of the text. And what the text is telling us is that God created us like himself in his image, and that image is that we have management over the earth. We are to tend his garden. That's our purpose. And that becomes the final element in our identity. God thinks enough of us to trust us, to care for his creation. And our word gives us a purpose, and it forms who we are. Now, our response is to be like Mary. When the angel came to her, stood before her, and announced that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. 
This passage of scripture, I believe, tells us about our identity. And that identity begins with who is God? God who is for us, who created us, with the highest of his creation. It tells us who we are. We are creatures that are special, created in the image of God with a purpose. To tend his garden. So be like Mary. Say, here I am. A servant of the Lord. 